morning. I wonder if you'd um, think in your hearts as I uh, read Psalm 8 and praise our wonderful God. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honour. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Second lesson is from Matthew 24, reading from 1 to 31. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to his buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one in the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. 
How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequalled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equalled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At the time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Thank you, John, and hello again, everybody. Some of you might have heard of an experiment conducted in 1972 called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. If you haven't heard of it or know what it is, I'm going to tell you, but you can YouTube it, or better still, you could join the kids' ministry team and see if they let you do it with the kids up there. I don't know. Um, here's how it works. Uh, they, they, they took some kids, and they took a kid into a room, and they said, here is a marshmallow. And uh, if you don't eat this marshmallow, we'll give you two marshmallows. In fact, you can have two marshmallows or a pretzel. You just got to sit with this marshmallow for 15 minutes. And they left the room. Now imagine what that looks like. Uh, You can see video of it of kids. Some kids just went, (laughs) done. Uh, Some kids agonized over these marshmallows, staring at it, contemplating its molecular structure sniffing it, bonding with it for future times. One kid sits under the table, doesn't want to see it. Another kid goes and sits in the corner. I won't look at the marshmallow if I just be somewhere else. I'm a fluffy white cloud. No, that's like a marshmallow. Oh, no! Trying to avoid consuming the marshmallow that they might get there too. The whole thing in this is about delayed gratification. But the idea is that the decisions you're going to make now have to be made with the end in mind, right? If you want your double marshmallow, or better still a pretzel, I'm way more savoury than I am sweet. Uh, If you want that, you're going to have to make decisions now with the end in mind. Why am I telling you this? Because we're in a series called Finding Hope, and we want to understand 
the hope that we hold that is wrapped up in the return of Jesus at the final day where heaven and earth come together. And so we got to work out where do we start if we're going to have this hope? Where do we begin to make sure that this hope is ours? And here's the big idea for this morning. You'll see it on the screen. There is one day that changes eternity. Now, as I said last week, at any time, you can uh, scan that QR code or just use the box at the back of the room, send in questions, and we'll deal with them in the last week. Where do we start when we're working with the end in mind? Well, I want you to know that there is one day that we've got to focus on because that one day will change eternity. Now, last week, I told you I was going to be painting not just with broad brushstrokes, but with my roller, and I introduced you to the Jesus map. And on the Jesus map, we started with Job and we understood that we would proceed with hope and humility. And we came to understand from Colossians that God was reconciling all things to himself in Christ. And so we had this amazing concept that not just was I being saved from hell for heaven, but that God was bringing realms together, like the realm of the earthly Job and the realm of the creator would come together in this end time new creation And it all happens with Jesus because every time our Redeemer stands on the dust of the earth, things get better. And so we came to understand that Jesus is the hope for everyone and everything, the only hope for everyone and everything. Well, today I'm going to put my roller back in its box. But before I pick up anything too fine, I'm going to be painting with broad, broad brushstrokes again as we jump in and understand, well, if this hope is so great... How do we achieve it? Now, as, jo- as John was reading Matthew 24, I-, I doubt many people were like, oh yeah, that's my memory verse. That's the one I always remember, how dreadful it will be for pregnant ladies. Actually, some of the women who have had children probably just resonate with that and go, yes, it is dreadful for pregnant ladies. You have no idea. And you're right, I don't. Oh, I watched it. It looked pretty bad. God bless you, mums. God bless you all. Oh, it looks like hard work. You have my respect. But you read a passage like that and you think, huh? What's going on? Maybe one of the first questions for us, for us to ask is, where are we? Have a look at the Jesus map with a, a few details changed. Here are three words that I think will serve us well this morning, then, now, and later. You've got to work out what's then, what's now, and what's later. You see, the disciples who are talking to Jesus belong to a time that we might call then, back then. And their later is our now, because we live in a different time. And our back then is their now. Do you understand? You see how we live in different times, because they were 2,000 years ago, but not only do we live in different times, we live in different eras. How easy is it for us to practice chronological snobbery as we look back at Peter and the guys as they make mistakes and go, oh, you boneheads. What amazing men of faith walking with Jesus. They haven't seen his resurrection yet. Just see uh, an amazing rabbi from Nazareth who is claiming that the kingdom of heaven is coming and it's coming with him and they follow. We've got 2,000 years of church history. We've got Pentecost and the Spirit of God. We've got all of these things in our favour. <laughs> I wish I was half as faithful and as bold as Peter, like at least he made a few steps walking on water, I would have sunk like an anchor from the beginning. Still do from time to time. Amazing guys. They live in then. We live in now. We look for later. 
it's worth noting that we will have different priorities, will we not? And so as we read this passage, we've got to be mindful of what is then, what is now, and what is later. Now, Robin introduced us to this idea during the Galatians series. The series uh, well, he showed us that uh, Greek guy, Narcissus, who became intoxicated with his own beauty as he looked at a puddle and just stared at it. And sometimes we can be a little like Narcissus as we read the Bible. We look and we say, oh, there's me, it said you, that must mean Shane. There are other yous in the world, Shane, it's not always about you. Sometimes there is a you in front of Jesus that he is addressing before he addresses you. So as we read a tricky passage of Scripture like this, it's important that we don't say, well, that's all about me. It's about someone else first. And particularly when that someone else is living in the then, when you're living in the now, consider they might have a different priority, a different itch to scratch to the one that you have. And so we've got to be a little bit careful. What's their priority in question? It might be different to your priority in question. What's their custom of language and learning? Is it different to yours? We're Westerners, man. Give me the blueprints. Give me the headlines. Tell me. That's how I'll learn, apparently. But in the Eastern mindset, it's uh, give me a riddle. Share a parable. Ask me a question. Take me on a journey of discovery. That's how I learn. So important to learn like them with their priority and their questions. Now, one of the things that's also important to realize as you're reading tricky scripture like this, what kind of scripture is it? We are in the Gospel of Matthew, and like Luke and Mark, he's writing a story. This isn't like the newspaper where you flip it open and there's just these separate headlines that are not necessarily related. This is a story with scenes, and all the different scenes are related as Mark is Mark. Matthew is telling a story. His story is about Jesus Christ, the one who came and said, the kingdom of heaven is near. And it comes with me. So the story has a scope and it has a priority. And Matthew's scope is to take us from after the time of Jesus' birth. He allows for a genealogy, like a, a prelude. After the time of Jesus' birth, that's what I'm interested in. To the time just after his resurrection and his great commission doesn't go as far as the ascension these things are beyond his scope he also has a priority as the chapters go by and he's been building a priority here and the priority of this story thus far is jesus said yep i'm the christ and when they said yep i'm you're the christ he said and i've got to die and now he's come into jerusalem chapter 21 and everyone all his disciples are here all right here we go here comes the kingdom of heaven and we're all on the edge of our seats and going oh is it about to about to happen but didn't you say you had to die what's that all about there's a narrative tension in the story we're waiting to see these events in jerusalem of a man who said he was coming to die and rise again and so the story has a scope it also has a priority we expect next things the reason i'm telling you this friends is i need to challenge how you might be reading from your perspective and respectfully i want to challenge the view of some who are far more godly than me many much more educated than me who have read this passage in a particular way what i want to say to you this morning is although you might assume and many have argued that this is a passage talking about the end time return of jesus i and many other like-minded people with me will contend that this passage has absolutely nothing to do with the return of jesus in the end time however it's essential for preparing 
for the return of Jesus. Let me say that again because it might be new to you. You might be like, really? This passage has nothing to do with the, refine, with the final return of Jesus, the coming of the Lord, but has essential information for you to find hope and be prepared for the coming of Jesus. So let me pull out my broad brushstroke and see if I can help us understand it. It kicks off with uh, Jesus and his disciples near the temple walking along, and they draw his attention to the buildings. Let's understand what's happening. Jesus has come into Jerusalem in chapter 21. You might recall, it's a time of triumphal entry. They lay down palm trees, and Jesus comes on a donkey, and uh, people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're thinking, here we go. We've been following this guy for three years, and here we go. Our king has come into the holy city, and now you're going to see the kingdom come. But the day kind of takes a dive as Jesus gets in a fight in the temple and then by the end of the day they hightail it out into Bethany because it's not safe for him to be there and the next few days are days of teaching and conflict and it's all just a wrestle. Chapter 23 ends with just a sad Jesus looking down on Jerusalem and you've got to hear his heart at this point. Jesus looks at Jerusalem and as the Messiah who came to rescue, he looks at them and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you under my wings like a, like a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks and look after you. but you are unwilling. See your house is left to you desolate. Note the language. I, the Messiah who came to bring God's blessing to you, you have rejected me. See your house is left to you desolate. Note the language. <sighs> what do you do when you see your leader worn out and tired you try and encourage them when a leader thrives everyone gets better life gets better for everybody so that's what the disciples do as they're walking through jerusalem they call jesus attention to the buildings now you might think big deal buildings uh this is not like just a tour of chicago and wonderful architecture you've got to understand for israel the holy city is the city of david this is the manifestation of the kingdom and uh, Psalms like Psalm 87 talk about you've established your city on your holy hill. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord God Almighty, thinking about the temple. So they say, hey, Jesus, chin up, boss. It's okay. The city still stands. We're not in exile. And you are the Messiah and you've come into the city. So, you know, the project's still got legs. Jesus gives them a reality check at this point. Uh, <clears throat> in verses 1 to 2, he says, See all these things, uh, no stone will be left on top of another. It'll all be torn down. What he's saying is there's a new hope to come. You hoped in the city that David built and Solomon prospered and you hoped might be restored in the time of Nehemiah and all that sort of stuff and you're thinking that's it but I'm telling you that is not the hope I'm talking about in fact we're about to go much bigger than that one day read John's gospel and you'll see John has a commentary on these things as well Jesus is saying it's not that that is the hope there's a bigger hope to come 
all right, you're a disciple of Jesus and now you think, well, I've got different questions. All right, if it's not what we thought it was, then what is it? If it's not you in the holy city and, you know, reigning like David used to reign, then what should we look for? What will be the sign and when's it going to happen? James and John are like, we left out that Zebedee in the boat and it's been three years and we're, 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 we're waiting for this kingdom of heaven that you said was near. When will it happen? What is the sign that we should look for? What will be the sign of your coming? This language of coming uh, in the original language is parousia, often used to describe things like the return of Jesus and rightly for that. But a parousia of a king in the ancient world is bigger and uh, Peter drew attention to this. It's a coronation which the evening congregation didn't watch. I know you loyal monarchists would be watching it. Don't come back at me, just a joke. Keeping it light. Um, they're saying, when will be the time, because we watched you come into Jerusalem, it seemed a bit of a misfire. When will be the time where you take the crown, you hold the scepter, you sit on the throne? When will you arrive? You know, when you nail something, you're like, I've arrived. When will you arrive and be coronated as undisputed king? That's their question. Well, Jesus responds and he answers not with the answer to start with. In fact, verses 4 to 14 are the world's first, as far as I'm aware, game of Simon Says. Has everybody played Simon Says? We don't need to play Simon Says, do we? Because I can get someone up here to lead some. No, we're good? Okay, who's ever won at Simon Says? I've never won at Simon Says either. So we've all lost it, Simon says. Oh, you've, what? Oh, Simon, of course. Bet you everyone in the family has lost it, Simon says. Oh, the plight of a father. You lose it, Simon says, when you get caught up in the moment, somebody says, hands on heads, and you go with it. Because it just seems so enthusiastic, something should go with it. But Simon didn't say this is a theological game of Simon says. Jesus, for verses 4 to 14, says, don't be fooled. There are a lot of things that are going to blow your mind in this world, both for good and for bad. You're going to hear about wars. You're going to hear about cities destroyed. You're going to hear about unspeakable evils. You're going to see marvelous things. You're going to see powers, some that will be beyond this world. I get it they turn your head but Simon didn't say don't be fooled this is not what you're looking for Jesus says and that's verse 4 to 14 is basically Jesus describing what life on planet earth looks like in a world that has an underworld contending with it that is in bondage to decay and has sin you'll have trouble you'll have tribulation that's just what life looks like on planet earth don't be fooled then, verses 15 to 31, he tells you where to look and how to find hope. Jesus now points him in the right direction. And it's the exact direction he's always pointed them in. This is not the first time Jesus has had conflict and people demanding a sign for him to show that he is actually the king. In fact, it's happened before, and as you'll see on the screen, Jesus had an answer for it in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, they said, well, give us the sign. And he said, well, a wicked and adulterous generation, unbelieving, asks for a sign, and none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's the sign of Jesus being the Christ and the kingdom coming? Jesus says, my death and resurrection and nothing else. 
plain speak. My death and resurrection and nothing else. Now Jesus is a few days out from actually dying and his disciples are still wrestling with this language. So he dials up the scope. You've done this with your kids, right? They're being too noisy. Shh. Guys, keep it down, please. Guys, stop. Hey, and here's my other voice in a minute. Be quiet. Do you kids have to scream your heads off? Now, when you say, do you kids have to scream your heads off, does anyone rush for the first aid because someone's been decapitated? Probably not. This is hyperbole. This is the language of expression to say, what's happening right now? I want you to feel how out of order it is. You're screaming your heads off. Well, that's where Jesus goes. Jesus now makes his point with big language. You'll see on the next slide. He describes his death as the abomination that causes desolation and his resurrection as the coming of the Son of Man. This is not about some of the other things that it's being contended for, in my view. This is big language, like it's raining cats and dogs. No one rings the RSPCA, but you feel the calamity and the catastrophe that's going on outside. Jesus wants them and you to feel right now that this isn't just a sad day where a good bloke from Nazareth died on a cross, but the one through whom God was reconciling all things, things in heaven and on earth, and overcoming the dominion and darkness, when he dies on the cross, this is cataclysmic stuff that is going on that you just might not realize. And so he uses this big language. What is an abomination? Well, if you've ever been skiing, you probably don't want to meet the abominable snowman. No one wants to meet the Yeti because an abomination is a destructive sacrilege. It's big, it's bad, it's ugly, and you don't come out of it well. It destroys. That's why this snowman is not Frosty the snowman. The Yeti is the abominable snowman because he rips you to shreds, eats your face off, for real. There's an abomination that causes desolation. Now, some have contended at this point, some very godly, clever people who I disagree with profoundly, have said this is about the destruction of Jerusalem and the desecration and destruction of the temple in AD 70. I've got to tell you, for me, this just does not stack up. You see, by AD 70, we have a temple that is no longer the space to come and meet God. The temple, the, the curtain has torn some 40 years earlier, Jesus is the place to come and meet God. This, we're looking for a day here that Jesus says that is unequaled in history and will never be equaled again in its terror. Unfortunately, the temple's been destroyed before, and you guys know this. You know that Solomon built a glorious temple under God, and then King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and kicked it over. This is a temple that had some issues already, as Jesus demonstrated when he made a court of whips and had to clear the place. It's in trouble. For this to be the most terrible day in the history of the Jewish people doesn't do justice to what happened with Nebuchadnezzar's forces in history. Certainly doesn't do justice to the events of the Holocaust under Nazi Germany. And doesn't do justice to this story nor the theological ramifications of what Jesus said in Matthew 23 when he said, you've rejected the Messiah, see your house is left to you, desolate. What is the destructive sacrilege that brings barrenness and desolation? 
What is the worst day in history? The worst day in history is the one, the only, the first and the last time there was an innocent death. There's only ever been one innocent death and there'll only ever be one innocent death. And that was when they murdered the Messiah, when our sin required that they murdered the Messiah. There's your destructive sacrilege. The rejection of the Messiah is what causes desolation. You cannot be blessed by God outside of receiving the Messiah. So Jesus doesn't change his story. The same sign, my death, the first and only innocent death. And at that time, at that time, as you'll see on the next slide, you'll get a very clear sign, a sign you cannot mistake. Oh, a sign you can miss, mind you, more about that later, but a sign that uniquely will mark Jesus as the Messiah. And the apostles will speak to this time and again in the book of Acts. The sign you can't mistake is the coming of the Son of Man. It'll be as clear as lightning in the sky. Lights up and you go, when you see that, you know you're seeing it. A resurrected Savior. You see, many, many noble people have died for those they love. Nobody except for Jesus has come back to life for those they love. It is the unique sign, the sign of the prophet Jonah that Jesus has risen again. Why do we have this language of son of man? Well, we learnt about it in Psalm 8 in the first reading. The son of man is not a glorious Lord coming back at the return. The son of man is this humble little one. Contrast with the splendor of God and his creation. What is man? that you're mindful of him. The son of man, the kid that you care, he's humble and lowly. And so Jesus in his earthly ministry calls himself the son of man. Paul never speaks of the son of man post-resurrection. Son of man is a humble term. In Daniel 7, we see this image Daniel sees of the beastly kingdoms of the earth, powerful and ferocious. And amongst them is one like a Son of man, little, small, humble. But because of God, he is lifted up and exalted over all other kingdoms. I say again, lifted up and exalted over all other kingdoms. I say again, lifted up, coming on a cloud. Coming on a cloud, up or down? Up, on the cloud, to the Ancient of Days, to receive a kingdom above all kingdoms. Brothers and sisters, let the reader understand. I contend the reader often doesn't. Here, God is saying, I have exalted my humble son. Jesus is saying, what's the sign? How will you know my kingdom's coming? Well, you'll know my kingdom's coming when I overcome the underworld by beating death. When you see me do what no one else has done when I'm raised from the dead. Here's Jesus' answer in very plain words. The sign of the new hope and the time of its arrival is my resurrection and ascension. Jesus' answer in plain words. So where are we on the map? Well, that was then for them. They're like... How's this going to work? Jesus says it's going to work by my death and resurrection. That's the sign you're looking for. So it's in their future. 
How can we have hope? What is the day that changes eternities? It's actually in our past. It's not in the future. You wait for the future, you'll be too late. Today is your day to look at the resurrection of Jesus, his loving death and his powerful resurrection, say, I put my hope in that, I put my trust in that, I'll be united with Christ in his kung fu grip by his Holy Spirit. He will hold me because I trust in him and I will have hope forever. Why do I want you to know this? I want you to know this because there is only one sign. I want you to know that in the now time, there is just one sign, just one hope, and I want you to not be scared. My fear is that when this passage and the ongoing scriptures are interpreted in such a way that speak of Jesus coming back, it brings about in the people of God fear as you worry about this terrible day that is to come. If you're in Christ, there is no terrible day that is to come. There is no tribulation that is to come. You're living it but you're living it in his grip. You are saved and someday you will put off the old. And I don't want you for a moment to be like you were in primary school or high school when the teacher left the room and you were mucking up and then someone said, he's coming. It's everyone being good again because you don't want to get busted. Please don't adopt a salvation by works methodology where you think Jesus will return one day and I better find him doing me doing the right thing. Trust me, you're a sinner now, you'll be a sinner then and you'll be saved by grace and grace alone and declared a saint as you are now. Jesus may return to find you doing something wrong and he'll save you because he died for that. The only way to be safe at the end is to put your trust in the day that changes eternity and it is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the one day to focus on and brothers and sisters, it's our story to tell. What is it? What's the application of this? Preach the gospel. Matthew 24, 31, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. I don't know if anyone's called you an angel lately, but that's what this passage is talking about. This is apocalyptic language. Angel, angelos is the original language. It can just mean messenger, but it's appropriate to translate angel because this is that big language. God's going to send his messengers in other spaces, he talks about the angels of heaven. Here he doesn't. He just says angels. He's going to send them. So who are his angels? They're you. What's their loud trumpet call? The gospel. He is risen. How does he gather his elect? When they respond and put their trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. From one end to the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Jesus actually says this in a much clearer way a little bit later. It goes like this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And truly I am with you to the end of the ages. Matthew 28 verses 19 to 20. Friends, there's nothing new. Same good, good gospel is your hope. There is one day and one day only that changes eternity. Preach the gospel. It's the only way. So one last look at the Jesus map. That's where they were. That's where you are. If we want to be set and see everyone we love set for later, tell them the gospel. The only way to be prepared is by trusting in him. Because you know what the gospel does? 
the gospel does, if you read the rest of this passage, it divides. Some have thought that there's this scary stuff later that's going to happen. If you read on in Matthew 24, it talks about, you know, two will be together and one will disappear. They've come up with ideas like a rapture and things like that where you get sucked off to heaven. We've read the Jesus map. We know that that's not the case. Heaven's coming to us. Heaven and earth are physically joined together. There's no sucking off anywhere. This is expressive language. You preach the gospel, and when you preach the gospel, it separates. You may have sat in church for 50 years. Have you responded to the gospel? Because sitting in this church for 50 years or any other church, or in a church that's lost its way, like some of the ones we've heard about, that's not salvation. Salvation comes when you hear the announcement, He is risen, and you put your trust in that day that changes eternity. So do not fear. Do not think people are getting left behind and all that sort of stuff. Preach the gospel. The return of the Lord, no one will miss that. But many have missed the coming of the Son of Man, the resurrection. We need to tell them. We need to tell each other so we can put our faith and hope in that and be prepared for the return of the Lord. There is one day. There is one day that changes eternity. Are you ready? Do your friends know? Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that the sign of Jesus is clear like lightning in the sky. His resurrection and his ascension to your right hand where he sits, reigns over heaven and earth and intercedes for us as our risen saviour. Father God, the words I have shared to the best of my ability may be tricky for some to understand and may even challenge views. So I pray, Father, that it would not be my words that are heard, that you by your spirit would direct us all back into your scripture, that we would wrestle and agonize with it and find your clear voice. Father, with one accord, we can say, our Savior is risen and he is our hope and he will return. Lord God, may we trust in his resurrection that we may be ready for his wonderful return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.